5. This is seen in Grace's dwelling place. In what uncongenial and inimical surroundings is the new nature set in the depraved soul of a fallen creature? Not only is there nothing in man capable of nourishing the principle of holiness, but everything which is directly opposed thereto. The flesh lusteth against the spirit. Galatians 5.17 Birds do not fly beneath the waves, nor will fish live on dry ground, because they are out of their native element. Then what a wonder it is for grace to be preserved and grow in a heart which by nature is desperately wicked. Would trees grow if their seeds were planted in salt? Why then should communicated grace take root and bring forth the fruit of the Spirit when planted in the midst of corruption? That is truly a miracle of divine horticulture, a miracle which is far too little attended unto and admired. Well may each believer exclaim, I am a wonder to many. Psalm 71.7 Not failing to add, but thou art my refuge. The Christian is a mystery to himself, an enigma to the unregenerate, who cannot understand his denying himself the things they delight in, and finding pleasure in what they loathe. But he is a wonder, a prodigy of grace unto his brethren and sisters in Christ. The miracle of the survival of the principle of grace in a human soul will be the more manifest if we contrast the present case of the believer with that of Adam in the day of this pristine purity. Grace was connatural with our first parents when their maker pronounced them very good. If then they so quickly lost their grace when it was placed in a pure soul, what a wonder it is that it should be preserved in a heart which is essentially evil. When the Son of God became incarnate, Herod moved the whole country in a determined attempt to slay him, and when Christ comes into the heart, the whole soul rises up in opposition against him. The carnal mind, the lust of the flesh, an intractable will, are all antagonistic to every breathing after holiness. The preservation of grace in the saint is more remarkable than for one to succeed in carrying an unprotected but lighted candle across an open moor in a boisterous wind. Yea, as the Puritans were wont to say, it is as though a fire were kept a-burning year after year in the midst of the ocean." Grace is not only preserved, but maintains its purity amid indwelling sin. As gold cannot be altered in its nature by the dross or transmuted into the rubbish amid which it lies, neither can the new nature be defiled by the mass of corruption wherein it dwells. 6. This is seen in their exposure to Satan's attacks. 
If there were no devil at all, it would be a miracle that any believer should persevere in the path of obedience while living in such a world as this, surrounded as he is by the ungodly, ever seeking to allure him into their own sinful ways, carrying within him lust which are in full accord with the evil around him. It is a wonder of wonders that he should remain steadfast. But over and above that, he is called upon to resist the arch-enemy of God, the mightiest of all his creatures, who is filled with enmity against him and bent upon his destruction. We are plainly warned, your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. 1 Peter 5, 8 How then shall feeble lambs hope to successfully resist him? We are told that when the woman brought forth the man-child who was to rule all nations, that the red dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child. Revelation 12:4. As the dragon acted thus toward the head himself, so does he still seek to vent his malice upon the members of his mystical body. Who is capable of estimating the power of Satan and the hosts of evil spirits he commands? And who can adequately describe the weakness and frailty of those called upon to withstand his attacks? If Adam in paradise with no lust within to entice and no world under the curse all around him fell under the very first assault of Satan upon him, who are we to engage him in conflict? Fallen man could as well move a mountain with his finger as overcome the prince of this world. Nevertheless, of renewed men it is written... For we wrestle not against the flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against wicked spirits in the heavenlies. Ephesians 6:12. Satan with all his wisdom, his power, his myrmidons are marshaled and exerted in tremendous opposition to the interests of the children of God, as the histories of Job, of David, First Chronicles 21, 1, of Joshua, Zechariah 3, 1, of Peter, Luke 22, 31, and of Paul, First Thessalonians 2, 15, clearly show. We have often marveled at the deliverance of Daniel while spending a night in the lion's den. No less a miracle is the Christian's preservation from the continuous attacks of Satan and all his demons. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Revelation 12, 11. 7. This is seen in the renunciations they are required to make. If any come to me and hate not his father and mother, and wife and children, and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me, he cannot be my disciple. So likewise, whosoever he be of you, that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. 
who can be expected to accept Christian discipleship on such exacting terms as these. No wonder that man of all shades of theological opinion have invented terms which are easier and pleasanter to the flesh, yet such are only blind leaders of the blind. Christ will receive none who refuse his yoke. God will not own as his people those who refuse to give him their hearts. Sin must be hated, lost must be mortified. The world must be renounced. A Christian is one who repudiates his own wisdom, strength, and righteousness. A Christian is one who holds himself and all that he hath at the disposal of the Lord. As Abram, at the call of God, turned his back on the old manner of life, so those who are his believing children are made willing to sacrifice all their temporal interests, counting not their lives dear unto themselves. What a marvel is this that grace enables its possessor to pluck out right eyes and cut off right hands, yea, which empowers timid women and children to go to the stake rather than apostatize. 8. This is seen in the way they are required to walk in. It is a narrow way, for it is shut in on either side by the divine commandments, which forbid all that is contrary to the divine will. It is the way of holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. It is the way of obedience, of complete and continuous subjection to the Lord, wherein my own will is set aside. It is a difficult way, hard to find and harder still to traverse, for the whole of it is uphill. It is a lonely way, for there are but few upon it. It is therefore a way which is entirely contrary to flesh and blood, which presents no attraction to fallen human nature. Yet it is the only way which leadeth unto life. That narrow way of self-abnegation is the one which Christ trod, and sufficient for the disciple to be as his master. He has left us an example that we should follow his steps, so that there is no following of Christ without walking in the way he went. And that way was one of sacrifice, of bearing reproach, of enduring suffering. Whosoever shall save his life for himself shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. Matthew 16:25. No cross, no crown. What a marvel it is for any sinful creature to voluntarily choose such a path to accept the cross as the dominant principle of his life. 9. This is seen in the frailty of the Christian. We would naturally think that since God requires his people to overcome such formidable obstacles, perform such difficult tasks, and wrestle with such enemies, he would make them strong and powerful. Surely if they are to maintain their piety in a world like this, discharge duties which are contrary to flesh and blood, resist the devil and all his hosts, 
The Lord will make each of his saints as mighty spiritually as Samson was physically. If one of them shall chase a thousand, and two of them put ten thousand to flight, must it not be because of their superior might? How shall they endure opposition, overcome temptations, be fruitful unto every good work, unless they be endued with abundant grace? But here again the Lord's thoughts are the very opposite of ours. His people are so frail and helpless in themselves that he declares, Without me, ye can do nothing. And sooner or later, each of them is made to realize this for himself. Apart from the Lord, the believer is as weak as water. Power for the conflict lies not in himself, but in another. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Ephesians 6.10 Peter thought he was strong enough in himself to overcome temptation, but he soon discovered that though the spirit was willing, the flesh was weak. But is there not such a thing as growing in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord? Certainly there is, but such progress is of a very different nature from what many imagine. Growth in grace is a deepening realization of where our strength, our wisdom, the supply for every need is to be found. Growing in grace is not an increasing self-sufficiency, but an increasing dependency upon God. Those who are spiritually the strongest are they who know most of their own weakness. It is the empty vessel which God fills. He giveth a power to the faint and to them that have no might of their own. He increaseth strength. Isaiah 40:29. Surely none of us can hope to attain a higher measure than that of the most favored of the apostles. Yet he acknowledged, When I am weak, then am I strong. Second Corinthians 12:10. Here then is truly a miracle that one who is compassed with infirmity, who is not sufficient of himself to think anything as of himself, Second Corinthians 3, 5, and therefore still less able to do anything good, who has no might of his own, who is utterly helpless in himself, should nevertheless fight a good fight, finish the course, and keep the faith. God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. 10. This is seen in the fruits which the Christian bears. We have already called attention to the survival of the principle of grace, despite the uncongenial soil in which it is placed, and the foul atmosphere of this world where it grows, and equally wonderful is that which issues from it. This line of thought might be extended considerably, but space requires us to abbreviate. What a marvel that the Christian's faith should be preserved amid so many trials and buffetings, betrayals by false brethren, and even the hidings of God's faith, that notwithstanding the most painful crosses and losses, it affirms, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. 
Not only have God's saints remained steadfast under persecution, but after being beaten, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Jesus. Acts 5, 40 and 41. While others took joyfully the spoiling of their goods. Hebrews 10, 34. What a marvelous fruit is this to glory in tribulation. Romans 5, 3. To sing a praise unto God. Acts 16.25 While lying in a dungeon with backs bleeding. Such fruits are not the product of nature. To hope against hope. Romans 4.18 To acknowledge it is good for me that I have been afflicted. Psalm 119.71 To cry, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. Acts 760, while being stoned to death, are the fruits of divine grace. 11. This is seen in their submission under and triumph of faith over the severest chastisements. It is natural to murmur when everything appears to go wrong, and the face of providence wears a dark frown. But it is supernatural to meekly submit and say, The will of the Lord be done. When fire from the Lord went out and devoured Nadab and Abihu because of their presumptuous conduct, so far from their father making an angry outburst at the severity of their punishment, we are told that he held his peace. Leviticus 10.3 When the awful tidings was broken to the aged Eli that both of his wayward sons were to be smitten by divine judgment on the same day, he quietly acquiesced, saying, It is the Lord. Let him do what seemeth him good. 1 Samuel 3.18 when Job's sons and daughters were suddenly stricken with death and his flocks and herds carried away by thieves, he exclaimed, The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job 1, 21. And when his own body was smitten with sore boils from the sole of his foot unto his crown, so far from losing all confidence in God and apostatizing, he declared, Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Job 13:15. 12. This is seen in their perseverance in piety, when deprived of all public means of grace. When the under-shepherds are taken away, what shall the poor sheep do? When corporate testimony breaks down, what will become of the individual? When Zion is made desolate, and the Lord's people are carried captives into a strange land, will they not pine away? True, this is an exceptional state of affairs, yet at various stages of history it has pleased God to deprive numbers of his people of all the external means of grace and preserve them as isolated units. It was thus at a very early stage. Behold, Abraham, the father of the faithful, dwelling alone amid the heathen, yet maintaining communion with the Lord. Behold, 
Daniel in Babylon in the face of deadly peril, preserving his piety. Some of us used to sing as children, dare to be a Daniel, dare to stand alone, dare to have a purpose true, and dare to make it known. Is not our own lot cast in a day when not a few of the scattered children of God have to lament? I am as a sparrow, alone upon the housetop. Psalm 102.7 Even so, as God miraculously sustained Elijah in the solitudes of Cherith, so he will preserve each of them. 13. This is seen in their deliverance from apostasy. What numbers have been fatally deceived by Romanism? What multitudes of the outer court worshippers have been stumbled by the multiplication of sects in Protestantism, each claiming to take the scriptures for their guide, yet often differing on the most fundamental truths? What crowds have been attracted by the false prophets and heretical teachers, especially in America during the past century? But though the real children of God may have been bewildered, yet it drove them to search his word more closely for themselves, for they know not the voice of strangers. John 10, 5 in our own day, because iniquity or lawlessness abounds, the love of many has waxed cold, and tens of thousands who a little time ago appeared to run well have gone back right into the world. Yet there is still a remnant who cleave unto the Lord. And the very fewness of their numbers emphasizes the marvel of their preservation. It is a miracle of grace that any hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end, never more so than in this dark day. What an amazing thing it was that Jonah should be cast overboard into the sea without a life belt and with no boat to rescue him, and yet that he was not drowned. Still more remarkable that he should be swallowed by a whale and remain alive in its belly for three days and nights. Most wonderful of all, that the whale disgorged the prophet not in the ocean, but vomited him out on the land. So amazing is this, that it has been made the favorite subject of jest by infidels. Yet it presents no difficulty to the Christian, who knows that with God all things are possible. We not only believe the authenticity of this miracle, but have long been convinced it is a designed type not only of the resurrection of the Redeemer, but of the preservation of the redeemed. The case of Jonah not only adumbrates a backsliding believer, but an extreme case of backsliding at that, showing that when a saint yields to self-will and forsakes the way of obedience, though he will be severely chastened, yet the arm of the Lord will reach after and restore him to the paths of righteousness. 14. 
This is seen in God's manifold workings in and for them. This necessarily follows from all that has been said under the preceding heads. The perseverance of saints must be the consequence of the divine preservation of them. Since believers have no spiritual wisdom and no spiritual strength of their own, God must work in them both to will and to do of his good pleasure. His preventing grace, as the martyr observed a murderer on his way to the gallows, he exclaimed, There goes John Bradford, but for the grace of God. From how many temptations and sins on which their hearts were set are Christians delivered, as David from slaying Nabal, protecting grace. Mercy shall compass him about as a shield, Psalm 32:10. Quickening grace, whereby the principle of holiness is enlivened. The inward man is renewed day by day, 2 Corinthians 4:16. Confirming grace, whereby we are kept from being tossed to and fro. Now he which establisheth us with you in Christ and hath anointed us is God. 2 Corinthians 1.21 and compare 2 Thessalonians 2.17 Fructifying grace from me is thy fruit found. Hosea 14.8 Maturing grace make you perfect in every good work to do his will. Hebrews 13.22 These and other operations of divine grace are all summed up in that acknowledgement Thou also hast wrought all our works in us, Isaiah 26:12, to which every saint freely ascribes, and which alone explains the marvel of his perseverance. Chapter 5, Its Springs We now turn to contemplate the most important and blessed aspect of our subject, yea, the very heart and crux thereof. The believer's perseverance in faith and holiness is no detached and isolated thing, but an effect of an all-sufficient cause. It must not be viewed as a separate phenomenon, but as the fruit of divine operations. The believer's continuance in the paths of righteousness is a miracle, and miracle necessarily requires the immediate agency of God. Our present concern, then, is to trace this stream back to its source and to show the springs from which this marvel issues, to admire the impregnable foundations on which it rests. Only as those springs and foundations are clearly revealed shall we ascribe the glory unto him to whom alone it is due. Only so shall we be able to apprehend the absolute security of the saints only so shall we perceive the vanity and uselessness of all the enemy's attacks upon this cardinal truth. The perseverance of the saints is assured by so many infallible guarantees that it is difficult to know which to bring before the reader and which to omit. The doctrine for which we are here contending follows as a logical consequence from the divine perfections. Whatever is agreeable to them and they make necessary must perforce be true. Contrarywise, whatever is contrary to them and reflects dishonor upon them must be false. 
Now the doctrine of the saints, a final perseverance, is agreeable to the divine perfections, yea, is made entirely necessary by them, and therefore must be true. And the contrary doctrine of the falling away of real saints, so as to perish everlastingly, is repugnant to them, and reflects great dishonor upon them, and therefore must be false. That which we have here briefly affirmed will be illustrated in detail and demonstrated at length in all that follows in this and the succeeding section. Summarizing what we propose to set before the reader, it will be found that the eternal security of the Christian rests upon the goodwill of the Father, the mediation of the Son, and the office and operations of the Holy Spirit, and therein... We have a threefold cord which cannot possibly be broken. 1. The unchanging love of God. This argument, however, is one which can have little weight with those who have imbibed Arminianism and accepted their false interpretation of John 3.16. But they who perceive the divine love to be a discriminating and particular and not an indefinite and general one will find here that which is sweeter than the honey or the honeycomb. If it were true that God loves the whole human race, then, seeing a large part thereof is already in hell, I could draw no assurance therefrom that I shall never perish. But when I discover that God's love is restricted to those whom he chose in Christ, and that he loves them with an everlasting love, then I unhesitatingly conclude that many waters cannot quench that love." Song of Solomon 8.7 It will lead too far afield for us to show wherein so many err concerning the meaning of John 3.16 or to evidence at length the discriminating character of God's love. Suffice it here to point out that for whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. Hebrews 12.6 would be meaningless did he love everybody. The next clause, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth at once, defines the object of his affection. Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Romans 9.13 Therefore Jacob is now in heaven, but his brother has received the due reward of his iniquities. We love him because he first loved us. 1 John 4.19 God does not love his people because they love him. No, we read of his great love, wherewith he loved us even when we were dead in sins. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5 When we had no desire to be loved by him. Yea, when we were provoking him to his face and displaying the fierce enmity of our unrenewed heart. God loved his people before they had a historical existence. For while they were yet sinners, Christ died for them. Romans 5, 8 Why, he declares, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Jeremiah 31, 3 
that love then derives not its strength or its streams from anything in us, but flows spontaneously from the heart of God, finding its deep wellspring within his own bosom. Since God is love, he can no more cease to love than he can cease to be. And since God changes not, there can be no variation and fluctuation in his love. The object of God's love is his church, which is his special delight. From all eternity he loved his elect and loved them as his elect, as having peculiar propriety in them. He loved them in Christ, chose them in Christ, and blessed them with all spiritual blessings in Christ. Ephesians 1, 3. He loved them so as to predestinate them unto the adoption of children. Ephesians 1, 5. He loved their persons in Christ with the same love wherewith he loves Christ, their head. John 17, 23. He loved them so as to make them accepted in the Beloved. Ephesians 1, 6. It is a love which can never decay, for it is founded on the good pleasure of his will towards them. God's love to Christ knows no change, nor can it to the members of his body. And hast loved them as thou hast loved me, John 17:23 declares the Savior, and he is speaking there as the head of his church. We are loved in Christ, and according to the relation we stand in to him, that is, as members to an head loved as freely and immutably. Though the effects of God's love vary in their manifestations, yet there is no diminution of his affection and none in its perpetuity. Men often love those who prove otherwise than they expected and come to repent of the affection lavished upon them. But it is not so with God, for he foreknew all that ever we would be and do, our sins, unworthiness, rebellions, yet set his heart upon us notwithstanding, so that he can never say we turned out other than he thought we would. Had God's love been set upon us because of some good or excellency in us, then when that goodness declined, his love would diminish too. God foresaw all the sins you would ever have. It was all present to his sacred mind, and yet he loved you and loves you still. C.H. Spurgeon The child of God may for a season depart from the paths of righteousness, and then will his father visit his transgression with the rod, and his iniquity with strife. Nevertheless, my loving kindness will I not make void from him, nor suffer my faithfulness to fail. Psalm 89, 32, and 33 is his own declaration. Because God's love is uncreated, it is unchanging. God does not love by fits and starts, but forever. Because it is founded upon nothing in its object, no change in that object can forfeit it. In every state and condition into which the elect can come, God's love unto them is invariable and unalterable, constant and permanent. 
we may repent of the love which we bestowed on some of our fellows because we were unable to make them good. The more we loved them, the more they took advantage of it. Not so with God. Whom he loves, he makes holy. This is one of the effects of his love, to shed abroad his love in the hearts of its objects to stamp his own image upon them, to cause them to walk in his fear. His love to the elect is perpetual because it is in Christ. They are joined to Christ by an union which cannot be dissolved. God must cease to love Christ their head before he can cease to love any member of his body. Then what madness, what blasphemy to think of any of them perishing. Over this blessed attribute of divine love is written in letters of light, semper idem, always the same. Those who are once the objects of God's love are so always. If God has ever loved you, my reader, he does so today, loves you with the same love as when he gave his son to die for you, loves you with the same love as when he sent his Holy Spirit into your heart, crying, Abba, Father, loves you with the same love as he will in heaven throughout the endless ages, and nothing can or shall separate you from that love. See Romans eight thirty-eight and 39. A preacher once called upon a farmer... As he approached his residence, he saw over the barn a weather vane, and on the top of it, in large letters, the text, God is love. When the farmer appeared, the preacher pointed to that vane and said in tones of rebuke, Do you imagine God's love is as variable as the weather? No, said the farmer. I put that text there to remind me that no matter what the direction of the wind, God is love. His love, no end or measure knows, no change can turn its course. Immutably the same it flows from one eternal source. 2. The Immutability of God the guarantee for the perpetuity of God's love unto his people is found in the immutability of his nature. From everlasting, Jehovah is God, underived, independent, self-sufficient. Nothing can, in any wise, affect him or produce any change in him, says the psalmist. Of old hast thou laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou shalt endure. Yea, all of them shall wax old like a garment. As a vesture shalt thou change them, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall have no end. Psalm 102, 25-27 this is one of the excellencies of the Creator which distinguishes Him from all creatures. God is perpetually the same, subject to no change in His being, attributes, or determinations. All that He is today, He ever has been and ever will be. He cannot change for the better, for He is already perfect, and being perfect, He cannot change for the worse. He only can say, I am that I am. 
Exodus 3.14 Unaffected by anything outside himself, improvement or deterioration is impossible. His glory is an unfading one. Now in this immutability of God lies the eternal security of his people. For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Malachi 3, 6 If any of them were lost, consumed by his wrath, then he must change in his attitude toward them, so that those whom he once loved, he now hates. But that would also involve an alteration in his purpose concerning them, so that whereas he has appointed them to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Thessalonians 5.9, he must consign them over to destruction. How entirely different would such a variable and fickle character be from the God of Holy Writ? Of Jehovah it is said, He is of one mind, and who can turn him? Job 23.13 It is because God changes not, His people are not consumed. His love wanes not, His will is stable, His word sure. Because He is the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. James 1.17 We have an immovable rock on which to stand, while everything around us is being swept away. The foundation of our preservation unto the end is the immutability of God's being, whereunto his love is conformed, so that his everlasting deity must undergo alteration before any of his children could perish. This is clearly the force of both Malachi 3.6 and James 1.17. In the latter, the apostle speaks of every good and every perfect gift, which the saints receive from their father, prefacing the same with, Do not err, my beloved brethren. The gifts bestowed upon the elect at their regeneration are not like Jonah's gourd, which flourished only for a brief season. No, they are from him with whom is no variableness, either in his love or will. For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance, Romans 11:29, or change of mind, and therefore they are never revoked. Let it be noted that those words were added to clinch the certainty of the purpose of God towards the remnants of the Jews according to the election of grace. Thus the immutability of God is the guarantee of the stability of his love and the irrevocableness of his grace unto us. 3. The irreversible purpose of God. Having set his heart upon a chosen people, God formed a purpose of grace toward them. In love, having predestinated them, Ephesians 1, 5, and the immutability of his being ensures the fulfillment of that purpose. The Most High does not determine to do a thing at one time and then decide not to to do it at another. The counsel of the Lord standeth forever, the thoughts of his heart to all generations. Psalm 33, 11, Because he has counseled everlasting glory unto his people, nothing can alter it. For the Lord of hosts 
hath purposed, and who shall disannul it? Isaiah 14:27. There are indeed many changes in the external dispensations of his providence toward his elect, but none concerning the thoughts of his heart for them. I am God, and there is none like unto me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. I have spoken, I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed, I will also do it. Isaiah 46, 9-11 through 11. What a foundation is there here for faith to rest upon. The divine will is inflexible, his counsel irreversible. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten dash thirty seven A Avenue, Edmonton. That's E D M O N T O N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A capital B, Canada, T six L three T five. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.